Sister Podcast, radio about Native American food. Appropriation is a hard thing to understand for some white people. And it's unfortunate that they do it for the whole world to see because they have the privilege, power, and platforms to go big and rich with culture that isn't theirs in Hollywood, literature, fashion, music, and food. In this episode, I invited some Native chefs to voice their opinion. This comes from a conversation we were having on Facebook, and it was about appropriation in the kitchen in Rick Bayless, renowned chef who specializes in Mexican food but is actually a white guy from Oklahoma. I reached out to Bayless but didn't hear anything back, so here's our conversation about appropriation in the kitchen. I have Erica Scott Pacheco, social justice fundraiser and campaign strategist. She's Lenape. Thanks for having me on, Andy. I'm excited about the conversation. All right. Thanks for uh, joining us today. And then we have uh, Neftali Duran, Mexico chef from Oaxaca, Mexico. Hi, Andy. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining. And uh, Sean Sherman, Oglala Lakota, founder of the company The Sous Chef. Hi there. How's it going? Good, good. And we also have uh, Carlos Baca, chef and forager. He's Tiwa, Dene, and Ute. Hey there. How's everything going? Glad to be here. Going good, and thank you guys for joining me today for this um, episode of Toasted Sister. Uh, so let's get right into it. Um, we want to talk about appropriation in the kitchen today. Uh, a couple of things um, we can start off with. Uh, Cook's Burritos in Portland, Oregon. Um, that uh, took off last month. Um, apparently a couple of white girls went down to Mexico during their Christmas vacation and uh, started peeking in some windows of some restaurants and uh, uh, t- stealing some recipes from some of the the ladies down there who, you know, obviously that's their, their line of work. Um, what do you think of that and how does it really scream appropriation? Yeah, so that's a great question because I think a lot of people are confused about cultural appropriation versus cultural exchange or appreciation for another culture. And this example really shows the clear difference because the these women asked questions from the cooks, got some insight and felt like they needed to know more so they could open their own restaurant and they reported that they were peeking in windows and spying on these women to learn their secrets. So to me, that's a clear example of you're appropriating, you're not appreciating, you're not showing respect, you're, you're actively uh, trying to spy when you've been told no, just to get financial gain for yourself. And I think that that crosses the line and their, their restaurant was shut down, right, because of all of this outcry. And so obviously that cultural appropriation uh, resonated with a lot of people who were unhappy with what they did. All right, Neftali, you wanna you wanna say something about that? Well, where where do we st- where do we start? I mean, right. uh, this is just one of the latest examples of 
people going down to Mexico, doing research, in quotes, doing research, uh, which is basically, you know, stealing recipes, coming back and making, a, you know, opening opening restaurants and making a great living out, living out of it. You know, this this is so problematic in so many in so many in so many ways. But just to put the cultural the perspective as opposed to appropriation, another term that I that I like to use, which is culinary synergy. Basically, when people of, of a dominant culture, which in this case is you know two ladies from the northwest, go to Mexico and uh, take recipes from people trying to make a living down there and open a shop. Is for me that is no different than a continuation of uh, colonialism, just in different ways. We uh, we no longer have we don't we no longer have a feudal system, agricultural system in Mexico, but we still have people taking constantly taking from people in communities trying to make a living, bringing it over to over the border, and making a living, making a great killing out of it, making a lot of money on it. So that's you know that's just a start. Yeah, this is Carlos. Uh, you know, in in a modern perspective, like looking at the historical context of what appropriation is, and especially in regards to food, I'm glad that it happened. It shows that we're in a time and a place where the people can speak and silence, you know, that kind of behavior. And I think uh, looking into the future. That's a moment that we can look at and say, you know, we we shut one down. Let's continue to put in that work. Um, this is Sean. You know, my take on this is part of the biggest problem is I think, especially in uh, America and Canada, um, there's really been no boundaries about uh, cultural appropriation with restaurants for so long. I mean, because we've all grown up, you know, going to um, you know non-Mexican-owned Mexican restaurants. Uh, that just serve a really watered down version of what, you know, real true Mexican regional food could be. And, you know, I think with the status of where we are culinarily, people are really interested in really tracing the roots back. Um, But the problem is, you know, when people are appropriating other cultures and not realizing it, part of it's just the ignorance that follows, that just is a part of it. They just don't realize that they're doing something wrong because they grew up their whole lives not understanding that, you know, there's sensitivities involved with these other cultures and some of these recipes that have been passed down and techniques that have been passed down for so long. And some of these um, cultures, especially with the Native cultures and Indigenous cultures in North America, you know, there's so much um, food, food, not food sovereignty, but just uh, food culture and food knowledge that um, needs to, you know, really be uh, reclaimed. you know, the U.S. and the uh, Canadian governments did such a good job of wiping a lot of um, the culinary knowledge off the map. And we just have, you know, so much work to rebuild a lot of that and get that really back in. And it's going to be up to those indigenous communities to really take part and do that. And a lot of this really comes down to education. So it's just teaching these people that, you know, you can't just <laughs> take something that's not yours and claim it to be yours and try to make money off of it. Um, so I think, you know, with them getting shut down so quickly, we're at this age where social media plays such a large part. We're so connected um, at an instant rate that, you know, people jumped on them immediately. And within days, they just, you know, broke with the pressure of everybody saying, like, you know, WTF, like, you can't be doing this. And, you know, that's, that's a good good and a bad thing for where we're at, you know, because we have that instant gratification of uh, 
people being able to have a voice immediately. Um, I just think that, you know, it's going to be uh, a weird transition as we move into, you know, understanding more and more cultures and, you know, who has the right to be able to do these foods and all of this stuff. If I, if I may jump in, uh, let's take it back a little bit. In the U.S. or North America, we do not have any protections for culinary creations. If you go to Europe, you can only make champagne in the region of Champagne. You can only do lardo in certain region of, of Italy. Not in, not in the U.S. In the U.S., it's free-for-all. We have been doing that based on capitalism because we have this system that doesn't mean that, it, that it's okay and that it's right. You, can, you will never be able to go to, to Europe and, you know, take champagne away from, from that region. That, that is just a legal stipulation that protects the livelihood of people from that region. We don't have that here. And because we don't have that here, every, for hundreds of years, it has just been free for all. And, take, you know, you take it back a little you, and it started with, uh, with colonialism. People took away chocolate, vanilla, uh, and all these other crops. And, you know, fortunes, kingdoms, countries were built, were built on it. Fast forward to, to nowadays, the Internet, technology has made, has, has to some degree they democratize the way we learn and the way we absorb information. In this case, in this case, these ladies were shut down immediately because there is you have access to information so fast. For every burrito shop like that, there's hundreds more 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 they continue to do to do this. I, I would hope that at some point there would be some protections for people not only to preserve their culture. The, to start with, was almost um, eradicated as, as cultural genocide. Uh, but we, I hope that at some point there, there's a conversation about uh, protecting culture, including culinary culture. That is one of the most important things to protect. Uh, as Michael Tweedy says, there's the two last things to go are your food and your language. And this is why this is so important. Because uh, in my region, the, the Mixteco region of Oaxaca, the Spanish came in 1520. We've been, we've been resisting ever since, and I see the uh, and I see me speaking up speaking up about these issues as just a continuation of that resistance. And uh, I'm gonna tell you why. It's because of culinary appropriation, appropriation, cultural appropriation, or economic uh, policies that people like me cannot make a living down there anymore. We have to come north. You know, that's a, we can do a whole a whole another podcast on that. But that's just, you know, a snapshot of why this issue is so important. All right. And uh, um, to you guys who weren't shut down as fast or have never been shut down, uh, very successful. Rick Bayless, he created uh, Frontiera. Uh, a series of Frontera restaurants across the country or uh, California, Chicago area, I think. Um, what do you guys think about his success? I mean, he is considered, you know, an uh, expert in Mexican food. I mean, he was even invited to the White House to cook for the Mexican president. What do you guys have to say about uh, about that kind of appropriation where it's just, you know, maybe even unquestioned, un- unfazed well, first of all, maybe we can go we can go back a little bit. Erica, do you want to take a take a stab at why these ladies were shut down and that this guy? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'll speak for all the women. 
I mean, I I think uh, obviously we we can look at uh, gender coming into this, where we we already know um, women, white women, earn what seventy three cents of the dollar. When you look at women of color learning even less compared to men of color and drastically less compared to white men and, uh, you know, Latino women, Native women earning something like 50 or 60 cents in the dollar. So I think that, sad, sadly, probably some of those uh, socioeconomic kind of realities that we live in with gender disparities come into play where it's easier to, like, criticize women and have them shut down because... Perhaps it was harder for them to get started versus a white man who's really built this whole empire um, already. I do, I do kind of hope that this was a learning experience for these women because the fact that they were so brazen about kind of like bragging, I feel that they almost thought it was like cool and clever of them that they snuck and were spying around to get information on how to make these tortillas like it was really kind of uh, just Columbusing. <laughs> they literally were discovering, you know, we talk about Columbusing, right? Literally the definition we've made Columbus a noun, we made it a verb. So they were literally like discovering this hidden recipe of the techniques to make the uh, tortillas that the Mexican women didn't want to share. And they seem very proud of that fact. So I kind of hope that they realize that that is like the definition of cultural appropriation with the power dynamic they're in a privileged position as white American women. They have the ability to go to Mexico, you know, visa-free. Mexican women can't come to America like that. So I do kind of hope maybe it was an eye-opener for them, and it, I hope it was a learning experience. But I also like to try to assume goodwill and good intent towards people and uh, often have to kind of play the educator role just in something that seems so basic to us as Native people. So. I, I do also agree with the other comment that with online and social media, it can really like amplify because we as Native people are very geographically isolated, but we can really amplify our voices and hopefully make that voice be heard. All right. Thanks. Thanks for that. But what about uh, if it was two women of color who did the same thing? What if it was two black women who went over to Mexico or two Navajo women? I, I would love to take this one on. All right. So this is, this, this is what, I, what I'm talking about when I'm talking about culinary synergy. If a sister from Navajo Nation goes to Mexico, most likely just because of our background, someone from Navajo Nation per se is going to go to Mexico and is not, and is going to behave in a different way and try to learn, genuinely, genuinely learn, I hope, I would hope. And that's a completely different thing, and I, w- and I would call that culinary synergy. When I cook with Brother Sean or with Carlos, that's culinary synergy, because we're bringing together our cultures, our, our history, our struggle, our ingredients, and making something new and something beautiful. Whether it's rabbit tamales with Sean in Minneapolis or venison tacos, chola uh, salad, that's different. That's completely different, and that doesn't, uh, that doesn't apply. When people of color or oppressed cultures come together and make something beautiful, culinarily, that's a completely different different experience. That's a completely different subject. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you some ex, some examples of uh, of thing, of recent his, uh, historical dishes that have happened in the U.S. When Roy Choi 
Korean-American chef that grew up in, in Los Angeles starts making Korean tacos. He grew up in the hood. And not only did he grow up in the hood, a lot of his time in kitchens were spent with Mexican cooks. People, uh, people from Mexico, from over the border, would take him down to Mexico and would share with him how to make birria, how to, how, you know, how to make a goat stew. That's, complete, that's a completely different experience than someone, than, than someone else. I, I would call that culinary synergy. In my point of view, that's okay, because this is how culture advances. This is how culture evolves. But that's not the same when a dominant culture takes something away. When a dominant, someone from the, uh, the, dominant, the, the dominant culture goes to Mexico, you know, like, this, like Mr. Bayless that has been going to Oaxaca for decades, has made a killing. And I don't know the guy. I, I'll probably meet him at some point. Um, the whole point of the, the, how this conversation started is through that Facebook post. I personally don't know the, don't know, don't know the chef. Uh, a lot of his friends have been defending him. I believe that, he, that, he's, that, he, that he's a good human. I hope that he's a good human. But I truly don't like what he represents and the way he speaks about uh, about uh, about what he does, the fact that uh, it's been now close to a decade and he's been going back on and he hasn't been able to learn and recognize that he is a white privileged person that tells me a lot about uh, a lot about this person. You know, it's well documented that he got into it years ago with Jonathan Gold from the. Uh, from the LA Times, who is an excellent writer, and Gustavo Arellano, who writes a column called Ask a Mexican. It's all well documented that he, at some point he, he said something, and it, it's been years, so I don't, I don't, don't please uh, don't quote me on this, but at some point he said that he was bringing authentic Mexican food to Los Angeles. You know, and that's not only, that, is, that is so problematic in so many levels. You know, Mexican. Mexican food to Los Angeles, where, where you know, is one of the largest Mexican-American diasporas in the, in the world. You know, and that was years ago. Uh, recent, recently, uh, on, the, on this podcast, The, the Sportful, he said things like, you know, people that criticize me are just racist. So this person really doesn't understand that there is no such thing as reverse racism. He just doesn't get it. And another thing that he said, I never thought about uh, about my privilege. Of course you didn't, because you never had to. You know, that's how privileged you are. You never had to, had to think about it. When it comes to what happened to cuisine or gastronomy, I agree with Sean and I, and I agree with Erica that we have to believe that people are good humans and we have to educate at the same time for how long. It's been, you know, it's been hundreds of years. And clearly, being clearly being gentle, being the gentle Indians, is not working. So, at what point do we have to speak up? At what point is my responsibility to voice my opinion? Because I have a voice, and I'm privileged enough, even as a, as a Mexican migrant, to have a voice. So, it's my my responsibility. I feel that it's my responsibility to speak up, not only for myself. Not only for uh, not not only for my culture and the cuisine that I uh, the cuisine that I represent, but also but more importantly for the thousands of people 
there are cooking in kitchens and do not have a voice. So, you know, this is this is just so problematic at so many levels. Going back to this, uh, to Chef Bayless, the reality is that he's made a he's made a living, fame, and fortune on Mexican food. And one of the things that he will say is, "Well, I'm translating Mexican food to the American palate." Well, since when we needed to do, we needed that? When the diets around the uh, around the world are based on indigenous ingredients from the Americas, corn, beans, uh, chilies. Uh, tomatoes. Just think about think about all these cuisines. They they have all those all these ingredients. Why would they be without the, without the, without those ingredients? It's not like they need exposure. It's just like they, we never had a voice. We never had a say of or on where our ingredients went because of uh, because of uh, capitalism and before that colonialism. At what point? In, at what point? Enough is enough. And I've taken a cue from two people. Out there, out there in the public, in the public domain. One of them is Eric Wang, who's a Taiwanese American, who has been been very outspoken about Chinese food and about uh, he's just been, been very spoken about many different issues. The other person is uh, Michael Tweedy, who's a black uh, Jewish Southern chef that they goes to many different places and lectures about the slave experience and, and about how Southern food. Is black food. All of those things have brought me to the point where either who has a voice, you know, who has the responsibility to speak up when it comes to food from Oaxaca. Sadly, many of us don't have access to media. How many of us, just on this call, have been invited to CNN or how many of us have been invited to the White House? You know, we don't because we don't have the, uh, we don't have a say on our food. And that has to stop. All right, Sean, Carlos, you guys want to uh, jump in? Yeah, I'll, I'll do this, Carlos. I'll jump in. Um, you know, like uh, just for further context for the listeners, you know, what started this this conversation was uh, Rick Bayless's response to NPR calling him out about appropriation. Within the first paragraph, you see exactly where the level of privilege comes from. He states that over the years, he's had a few people with Hispanic-sounding last names call him out for stuff. And in that statement right there, you know, left me with with a bad taste in my mouth instantaneously. I'm sitting there thinking to myself, yeah, so let's discredit the people who hold cultural right and cultural heritage to this food. Let's go ahead and just put them on the sideline and let them know that I'm so far ahead of that that I don't have to justify myself. And he gave a very lengthy argument, you know, for his case, to which, I mean, we're sitting at, we've been in a conversation on Facebook for four days now, and it's an ever-going thread. And like Neftali said, you know, we have you know, personal friends of his that dine in his home and eat with him on this thread that, you know, have given their perspective of him and, you know, have said, you know, he's, he's a decent human being that he doesn't feel, I guess, that he needs to do anything more than put the food out there, you know, for, you know, we go to that white savior concept. And uh, I think that Neftali has, you know, opened the door of conversation to him. 
uh, we all have, you know, like invited him to the table to, you know, say what, what's the remedy for this, you know, like he'll be part of the solution, right? Like if you, if you've seen the effect and the conversation that it's created through your actions and you take inaction, you're basically, you know, putting up the middle finger to the indigenous cultures in the Americas when you're sitting there representing uh, the exact opposite, saying that, you know, you're bringing it out here to the forefront. And, uh, you know, Erica and I were in a conversation earlier with a gentleman from New York City at length about uh, the capitalist ventures. And, you know, he's saying we need to go to Congress to uh, work on changing these rules because capitalism is the be-all, end-all. And I'm saying, but what about humanity, right? What about having to, uh, what would be the word for it? So, I mean, having acceptance and dealing with the consequences of those actions on a human level, you know, like where do we sit with that? And, uh, you know, for myself, I believe that until... You know, people like Rick Bayless and Francis Ford Coppola and, and these people actually have to come to the table and sit with us face to face and actually, you know, have these conversations. I don't I'm not quite sure where we're going to get with this, you know, but uh, I think that, you know, the door is opening, uh, you know, with social media, like we were talking already earlier and uh uh, the indigenous voices of the Americas finally come into the forefront. That it, it's time, and uh, I think it'll happen sooner than later. All right, Sean. Did you want to add anything about uh, Rick Bayless? Yeah, you know, I think you know my biggest problem with what Rick Bayless's vision is. It is it's obviously you know all out for himself. He's just building his own business and his own brand and his own name. And he found a niche that works for himself, but unfortunately, you know, it's appropriating another culture. So it's not very cool. And, you know, I've been to some of his restaurants, like in Chicago um, and stuff like that. And, you know, we have these kind of restaurants all across the country. Um, and, you know, there's just so much better that we, you know, that we can do. And I think we are getting there. And I think with um, having a platform to have voices that we are starting to create social change and thought, which is going to be very important for all of us. Um, we haven't really talked about Francis Coppola yet, but, you know, that one bugs me um, even more so, I think, just because his restaurant, you know, in California, he kind of uh, fantasizing about this tribe with this theme of this Eastern tribe um, and creating a Native American restaurant. And, you know, he had reached out to some of us. He reached out to um, Loretta and he reached out to... Um, the guy at Takabe, um, and had talked to everybody and seemed like he kind of for himself got an okay to do what he's doing. But, you know, when you look at the menu, it's just kind of all over the board, super fusionized. And, you know, in his own way, he thinks he's educating people about Native American culture and food, but he's treating it like it's a thing of the past. And, you know, if he was doing it right, he would be celebrating the Native cultural history of the area in California that, that he's in and buying ingredients from the local tribes there and helping them economically and hiring chefs, you know, to train and celebrate those foods because California has such amazing history as does everywhere. And that's the problem is like, in, you know, all of North America, all of the Americas, the history begins with the indigenous histories and people have to understand that we have to teach people and we have to have platforms to teach about 
agriculture and our use of wild foods and our cooking techniques and you know the the vast amount of variation and variety that we had not only in food systems but in cultures all over the place is just you know because when you look at uh, America and Canada Mexico through indigenous perspective you just see so much variation and variety um, and it just changes everywhere you go and I just think there's so much opportunity for us to you know, create restaurants that are culturally and regionally appropriate so people can really understand the background and the history um, instead of just having hamburgers and Coca-Cola or poutine represent an entire nation. Um, and I think the problem with people like Rick Bayless is that, you know, they're just perpetuating this notion of Columbusing again, like you said before, um, and, you know, just doing it blindly with culture. Like, they think that they're representing culture, but they're absolutely not. They're just out there for themselves, and they're just, you know, fusionizing it as they please and calling it authentic. Wawokomoko is the name of that restaurant um, in uh, Sonoma, California. I'm pretty sure that's how you say it. Um, but, Erica, uh, we're talking about a lot of men here, um, Francis, Rick, um, the, and, and even Francis went out to ask a couple of uh, different chefs. But, um, you know, somebody wanted to get something authentic, something real. I mean, you go to grandma, uh, you go to your Indian grandma, you go to your aunts. And um, how do you feel that that's not really represented in uh, the culinary world? Yeah, I think that's... That's a great point because a lot of our tribes, not all, but many tribes uh, throughout all of North America are matrilineal historically and in the present day where women, we keep a lot of the culture alive and really in in the colonization and then continuing now into the modern um, rape culture where we see Native women being victimized, extremely high rates. Um, there's a there's a serious clash with attention there. Um, and so I do think that it would be an even harder burden for a Native woman to, or a Mexican woman or a woman of color to become a chef when there are white men saying that they are introducing the cuisine. Um, what really bothers me about Bayless is when he actually went to the White House and cooked for the Mexican president because... Um, I, I read an interview with him about that. I think that was in 20, I don't know, 2010. It was during the Obama administration. I think it was the first, his first term. And he said, well, he, he knew President Obama and Mrs. Obama because they had dined at his really, you know, exclusive restaurant. And that made me think, well, most, you know, like, like a Mexican abuela wouldn't have had that opportunity probably to have uh, access to credit to be able to open such a fine restaurant that the president would come. So already, like, you're kind of at a privileged echelon to have the president dining with you. And then he said that he was really proud because it would be the first time that non-European food was served in the White House. And that just really enraged me because if it's really the first time, you know, and I would have said the same about about. Asian, if it were like, you know, Japanese food or, or like some other cuisine, if it's really the first time, then why are you not having a culture, uh, a culturally affiliated person representing that cuisine? Why are you like patting yourself on the back and being so proud that you are introducing the world to cuisine that's not even yours? Um, and it really just made me think of how like there are plenty of Mexican women who probably just will never be able to take advantage of all those privileges that he's had. 
And it just made me really sad to think about all of our ancestors, grandmas, great grandmas, and, and going back and back, still keeping those traditions alive, but yet really being locked out because of these intersecting systems of of white privilege, of, uh, you know, oppression of women in general, really creating a perfect storm. Right. And you kind of got to it a little bit. Um, women of color wouldn't have access to that kind of credit to build a, a restaurant, even a fancy restaurant that the president would go to. Um, but let's just kind of get, uh, explain why people of color can't, you know, don't usually have these restaurants. So usually have the funds and um, the then maybe even the networking to start a big giant restaurant like these uh, white guys have. I mean, um, explain to uh, maybe listeners who probably don't get it or, or even understand why aren't they making these restaurants themselves? I can I can start us on that uh, because of colonialism. The food system in the U.S. is let's just tell it what, what how it is. The food system in the U.S. is built on the displacement and genocide of Native people and then on the backs of Black people. If that is the basis of the food system in the U.S., you have a food system that is racist. And after that, you have many, 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 many policies that have excluded people of color. When did, when did Native American people become citizens of the U.S.? So 1924, Puerto Rican people became citizens in 1919. So that is just like one simple example of how a whole system was built to prevent you from owning anything. And then after that, there's this whole Native American movement in conjunction with a people of color movement for food sovereignty. And we have a lot of things in common. And one of the most important things of, that we have in common is that we do not have access to land. And there's a reason why do, we do not have access to land. There, there has been a systemic uh, system that has prevented us from owning anything. So let's just throw one out there. The GI Bill. People that went to war were promised that when they came back, they would have access to land and loans. Did that happen? No, it didn't. USDA and housing authority. It wasn't until the 80s where, where people actually had access to loans from the USDA. That this is just a systematic problem that has persisted to prevent any of us to own anything. Because what is the, uh, you know, as, my, as Malcolm X said, revolution is always about land. Land and people, as Professor Chavez said. You know, it's not about the grapes of the letters. It's about the people. But in this case, we have been dehumanized for hundreds of years. People of color don't have access to capital, don't have access to loans, don't have access to, to exposure. And a very recent example, and I hope he forgives me, a chef, maybe I won't say his name, a chef from Chicago, a Mexican chef, migrant from, from Guerrero, comes to the U.S., does all the right things, cooks in the best kitchens in Chicago, finally opens a restaurant, but no, nobody shows up because we live in a society in which it is easier to digest and to believe that a white chef can cook Mexican food than a brother that looks like me. This particular chef in Chicago was about to, to shut down his restaurant. One thing that saved his restaurant in his career, really his career is that the uh, Michelin star guide showed up in the U.S. 
and awarded him with a star, which is one of the highest honors anywhere in the world. That's the main reason why that, that restaurant is still open and that chef still working. So there's many different layers to peel off here. In, uh, in the New York Times, which is one of the most important uh, papers to, to review food, to, uh, to talk about food, it wasn't until the late 80s, really late 80s, and it took, uh, and I, I believe that it was uh, a writer called uh, Ruth Rachel. She was the first person to talk about Japanese food and give a rating to anything else, anything else that wasn't Eurocentric. So you, you get the idea of how, how this system really doesn't work for someone that looks like me or someone that, doesn't, that looks like Carlos or Sean. And this is, uh, this is systematic. So was the, conversation, the conversation on Facebook, I was telling this other chef, and not my dear friend, I'm upset about what he represents and the system that he represents that has prevented many, many talented chefs to be the face of Mexican food or indigenous food, or Salvadorian food, or Peruvian food, you know, you name it. I'll stop there. I wanted to jump in real quick, too, because I think, like, uh, what Nestali is saying is it goes to intent, right? So if for over a decade um, people have come out with strong criticisms of Chef Bayless and he ignores it or he says it's some form of reverse racism, like, you're you're intentionally causing harm, in my opinion, at that point. Like, in contrast with the two white women from Portland, I like to think maybe they were just super naive and, and didn't get it, and then they got it, and they shut down. And he kind of doesn't want to hear it. And then when you turn it around and try to say that you're you're being a victim of racism because you, you don't happen to be uh, Mexican. I mean, that's just preposterous. It shows that you're not trying to engage in dialogue and really you're just shutting the conversation down instead of opening it up. And so, in my opinion, it does become harmful at that point on, on your behalf. Right, right. Uh, Sean, did you want to jump in on um, uh, why it's difficult or hard for uh, Native Americans to sort of jump into this game and, and have their own restaurant? I know um, uh, the, the sous chef, um, I've watched it become this really successful thing and, and the GoFundMe account just like is funding a, a future restaurant. But, you know, 15, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, could you just start a restaurant? You know, I think it's extremely difficult. Um, You know, growing up on my reservation in Pine Ridge in the 70s and early 80s, you know, we didn't even have restaurants on the the reservation at all. Um, We had, you know, very few businesses on top of that. Um, So, you know, an extremely high rate of unemployment because of no work and a very low, like, yearly wage. And that really hasn't changed that much, you know, in 30 years um, or even 40 years. And um, I think a lot of indigenous communities have gone through a, a mass amount of poverty and oppression, and some of them are reeling out of it. Some of them are kind of staying staying in it. You know, this is part of the recovery process um, for a lot of us to really look back at, you know, the, the really strong messages and knowledge and education that we have from our ancestors and figure out a way to pull that into the modern times today to really be impactful. And I think food is really at the center of it. So, you know, for us, like we're getting ready to open up our first restaurant, but we're trying to make it more than that because we're not out for the profits. 
we're out for, you know, making a change and doing something different. So, you know, we're creating, we created a nonprofit, you know, that's really going to drive the restaurant. And it's all about um, having a platform to deliver education and to showcase, you know, these foods that are very regional to our area. And we hope to be able to work with different people around the country to eventually, you know, open up other training centers and um, smaller areas that get directly out into the tribal regions that people can have a small food business that is uniquely theirs because it, you know, will reflect their culture, their history, their past, their foods, um, their region. Um, And we see, you know, this path of being able to do that, but it's going to take time and it's taking a long time because, you know, for somebody like me growing up with absolutely no money from a broken family, um, with lots of addiction issues and, um, you know, just unhealthiness and food issues, too, just like not even knowing what healthy food was growing up because of growing up on commodity foods and things like that, um, to becoming a chef and having these opportunities and having these doors open and being able to, um, you know, work with a lot of young um Native chefs and who have had who grew up in the exact same situation and give us all a unique chance and opportunity to grow and move forward. I think that right now it's just the time is changing and we have these opportunities and you know a lot of us who are developing these voices um, um, are being able to play an important um, part as role models for the future generations of things that they can accomplish. Um, and I think with you know, us opening up doors that, you know, there's going to be hopefully more and more, you know, regional food businesses and chefs coming out to really reclaim what is their cultural food of their particular regions and showcase to the world. Um, like this is really the way it should be done because this is the way it's been done in this region for thousands of years. Because, you know, like I said before, the indigenous culture, you know, indigenous history is the first thing you need to really understand if you want to understand the food of America um, of all both Americas, and there's just so much to showcase out there. So I really, I think all of us in this conversation can, you know, see, you know, the potential and the movement that's been bubbling and swelling, um, and I think it's only going to grow from here. All right, Carlos. Well, there's there's so many levels of things to touch on in this conversation. You know, I mean, it's a systemic issue, right? I mean. Like Naftali was saying, like, you know, everybody in this conversation is saying, but, you know, the ladies in Portland, they got shut down. Um, there's an, another group uh, that we're not talking about, which was the herb farm up in Washington, who uh, last month also decided to do a tasting menu that was called the Taste of Totems, showcasing indigenous foods of the past. And in their promotion of it, they said they were resurrecting indigenous food, to which I got online with their site and said, um, do we all die off and stop eating? They're like, what's going on here, you know? Um, and their immediate recourse was to delete my comment. But because of that, I reached out to our network. Well, you, know, you didn't call friends. us over. Huh? Oh, well, you didn't you call know, us they... over because apparently we do really well together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, so... There was, you know, tons of academia involved in this conversation and a couple of indigenous chefs, and we really took it to them hard. And we said, you know, who did you work with, right? Like, what indigenous chefs, what tribes did you work with? When you were out harvesting, uh, who did you get the traditions from? Uh, 
uh, how did you harvest? You know, like what were the prayers offered? What are all these things that, you know, as indigenous people that we do for our food, you know, like uh, that's that not only nourishment, you know, and medicine, you know, these are spirits to us, you know, this is like, it's much bigger of a scenario. Um, and in, in that happening, what they decided was that, well, you know, maybe we, we should have had this talk before. And they invited a few of the indigenous uh, people locally, um, as well as uh, some people in the conversation to go and dine there, to actually have a conversation about the food, right? And I think that, uh, you know, like I was saying earlier, this is like we're in a time and a place where our voices matter, right? Um, we can allow people to continue to dictate to us who we are, you know, superimposition of uh, the colonial mind frame that rests on us. Either we can continue to accept it or we step out of it. You know, I mean, that's that scenario with the herb farm is only one scenario. There was a, a magazine uh, uh, here locally in the Four Corners that's, you know, it's a travel and food magazine, and they did an article on a Mexican chef in Santa Fe that does tons of, uh, you know, local indigenous product. And they use this kind of the same terminology. Um, having been in this magazine previously, you know, I instantaneously say, you know, what does this mean? Right. Like, you're not you're not bringing us back from the dead. Like, you know, my work just fine. So what's going on? Their response was, you know, sometimes you just get it wrong. And on this one, we effed up and they fixed it instantaneously. Right. And so when I was speaking earlier about humanity superseding capitalism. Right. And so, um, you know, as a group, uh, the indigenous and the, the Mexican indigenous people that we work with on a regular basis, um, and the academia uh, included in that, we're we're definitely here and we're not going anywhere. And so, if chefs like Bayless and if uh, you know people like Francis Ford Coppola want to continue to perpetuate this colonial mind frame and not sit down at the table, they're on the wrong side of history, irregardless. Right? When when we're done rewriting our own history, they're going to be the ones that look like clowns when it comes down to it. Um, so I think that hopefully these words will uh, reach Mr. Bayless and they'll reach other people that are, you know, in those same shoes and uh, that they actually come and sit down at the table with us. We actually have this conversation. One of the, the conversations earlier on Facebook, uh, I said, you know, uh, he asked, What's the solution, right? And I'm sitting here thinking, well, you know, the solution is having these conversations, going into these communities, if you're going to do some kind of work like that, and saying, this is what I want to do, can you teach me? What can I give back to the community through this, right? Like, can I support the producers, the growers, the families that are harvesting that half the time don't even have food to eat on, on their own table, right? Like, what do we do to build community to actually have, you know, the respect of the people? And uh, I guess, you know, that's really where I'll just leave it. What else would you say to uh, people who are looking to um, borrow flavors from different cultures? Um, what else would you say to them? And what, what, what can white people cook? I guess, I guess I get a story on that, but I would like, there's a couple of things that I want to touch on. Something that, uh, 
I feel that uh, I right now in this time in history, I feel I I understand and I hear you guys that we have to educate and we have to like sit at the table. At the same time, when is enough enough? We'll sit with the rig bailers and we'll have this conversation. But more importantly, for us as indigenous people, is to recognize the people that come before us. In this case, all of our mentors, all of our grandmas, especially our moms, our grandmas, they have fed us and nourished us forever with very little. Getting back to Erica's conversation, all the all the people, all the ladies out there, all the sisters cooking delicious, amazing food, they will never get in, get in their recognition. You know, I would welcome the opportunity to sit with the, with Rick Bayless or whoever else and have this conversation. But the most important thing that I'm thinking about is the youngsters that will listen to this part, this podcast, the people that we all mentor. I'm thinking about my son. I want my son to grow, uh, grow up in a, in a world where he doesn't have to look north, when he doesn't have to, to wish that he was white to be successful. This is the, this is where we do this. This is why this is so important. All of us to get all of us together, I think right now, not only the Native as I said before, not only the Native American food sovereignty movement, but also the uh, also our black brothers and sisters and all the POC that are doing amazing work. We all have to be on the same page and we have we all have to collaborate and break barriers and uh, sit down and break tortilla together because we, at the end of the day, one of the most important things that we can do is we can start dismantling a system of oppression. And I already forgot your question. Sorry, Andy. All right. No, that's fine. No, I was talking like what I was talking about. What can white people cook? Um, is is uh, you know white food just flavorless, and that's why they're trying to uh, you know go to Mexico and steal all kinds of recipes? <laughs> I mean, what what can white people cook without getting uh, oh. uh, you know on our on our show and in our conversations about appropriation? Well, there, there, this is actually a really simple question, and I'm gonna tell you something. Okay, I've been collaborating. With a big, uh, with a big restaurant group in uh, in New York City, some of the best chefs, young chefs in the world, come out of this restaurant group. But they reached out to me years ago, saying like, we want to send our kids to our our young chefs to Mexico to learn. That's a completely different approach than saying we're gonna we're gonna go we're gonna go home to Mexico and steal, or we're gonna home, go home to Oaxaca and see what we can grab. That's a completely different different experience. When someone reaches out to me, and at this point, there's many people through this restaurant group that have gone to Oaxaca and have learned, and and the and their menus reflect that. Their menus reflect a, a hint of Oaxaca, even if it's main American main American fare right now. But that's a completely different approach in a way that for me, and I'm only speaking for myself as a cook from Oaxaca. That's a completely different approach than someone that goes and just gets the recipes and comes and opens a restaurant because we're having a conversation. We are engaging chef to chef, cook to cook, human to human, and we're understanding each other. And food is one of the most beautiful languages that we all understand regardless of our background, regardless of race, regardless of class. When that happens, 
when a cook from New York City has reached out to me and goes to Oaxaca, I want to make sure that he goes to he goes and visits Abigail Mendoza, who is one of the most important Oaxacan cooks in history. She's been recognized by everyone, including UNESCO, as one of the most important indigenous cooks ever. But do you know her name? No. There you go. So when someone reaches out to me and says, like, I'm going to go to Oaxaca, where should I go? And I said, go and learn, go and watch, go and observe, go and, go and listen to Miguel Mendoza mm-hmm. and learn something. And that chef come, comes back and puts on a menu uh, something, just one dish that comes to mind right now. It was one of the most delicious dishes I've ever had. When he puts on a menu, carrots, they're caramelized in chili ancho. That is not appropriating. That is learning flavors of Oaxaca using New York ingredients and putting it on a plate. And that's a beautiful thing. Mm. And I can get behind that every day. All right. Uh, Carlos, Sean, you want to add to any of that? Or um, Erica? Yeah, I'll, I'll hop in there. Um, you know, much like you know, what Neftali just said, and things I've discussed with my peers, is that my object is to make food that people in my community have a connection, a history to, and that they they taste it, they want to take it home. They want to come to me and say, how did you do that? How can I, you know, re- remake this at home and, and recreate this for my family? And I have had white chefs um, in this industry do that with me, and I really don't have a problem with doing that as long as they learn the tradition behind it as long as they know the story and the historical context behind what I'm providing and what the mission statement behind it is, right? And what, what our goals are for for our indigenous communities with food sovereignty. So, you know, much like Naftali said, you know, if it's done right and we're not looking at the, the capitalist colonial mind frame taking, then uh, I definitely am always open and willing to work with, you know, whoever. All right, uh, Sean or Erica, did you want to add on to that or um, maybe introduce another uh, quick topic? Um, I mean, in terms of like what what white people can cook, I just think uh, like if you're having to to sneak around and steal from people, whether um, there's copyright protection or not, because that was a point that one of Chef Bayless's friends, who's also a chef, brought up. I mean, that's just that's just kind of silly, like. Um, if if you're if you're trying uh, to do cultural synergy, just make sure like you go straight to the authority. To me, that just seems like such an obvious thing. If I want to learn to cook, and I'm not a chef, right? But if I want to learn to cook um, food from a, a different culture, like I'm, I'm gonna want to go to the source and understand what I'm doing. Um, and maybe that isn't obvious to everyone, <laughs> but it seems kind of obvious to me. And then I wouldn't want to like hold myself out as an expert because it would be like a privilege and an honor to get a, a, even, you know, a part of that knowledge and be able to share it with my family as I'm cooking. So I definitely think that there are, there are opportunities for synergy. And this is something that's been happening for like hundreds of years, right? Like, like uh, potatoes are indigenous to the Americas. A lot of people don't know that because you think like the Irish potato famine happened and that was very huge tragedy in the history of the Irish people. 
they didn't even have potatoes originally. Tomatoes are also another product that are indigenous to the Americas, and lots of people think that they must be from Italy because um, the, the wide use of you know, Italian uh, food having you know pasta sauce and tomato sauce. So, so this is nothing new um, in terms of synergy, but we can't like ignore the history that 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 was that, that history was like one of extraction, right? So colonialism was about extracting resources from the Americas. Um, and like a very violent and uh, dominating history. So there's always going to be this like cultural exchange, but now we really need to go about it the right way instead of going about it in a really exploitative and extractive way. Yeah, I agree um, completely. I mean, because food is something that, of course, we all have in common as humans. And I've been a chef for quite a long time, and I've been very curious about other cultures Um but I would, you know, take my time to research and never, ever claim to be better than the people where the, um, you know, food came from. So whether I'm studying Ethiopian or Japanese or Korean or even, you know, European food like German or French or whatever, you know, I just want to appreciate like the truest sense of the food. So taking the time to research those pieces. But, you know, I think the biggest problem we have with the appropriation of food is coming from, you know, the European cultures. So, you know, even the best restaurant in the world um, with the Noma group, you know, they walk a really fine line going to Australia or Mexico and, you know, putting on, you know, $800 per person dinners. Um, and because it's perpetuating that thing of, you know, European people coming in to showcase, you know, what's cool when the indigenous people have been doing that for centuries, you know, thousands of years longer. And it's just, you know, it's really dangerous for them to be playing that game when they should be, you know, focused on, if they're focused on the education of it and sharing and training um, and working with chefs to inspire of those regions. And that's one thing, but you know, I just feel like we have to be careful um, when it comes to, you know, down when it comes down to uh, just trying to make profits off of other people's um, knowledge. So, um, you know, hopefully there's a, a, since we do have these big voices through the Internet, that um, our voices are going to be heard and, you know, we'll be able to really help educate people on not being so culturally ignorant. If I, if I may jump, thanks, thanks Sean. Uh, this is Nathalie. Uh, that's a really, really interesting experience, interesting concept that is happening right now. I don't know if they closed the restaurant yet, uh, the, the, the restaurant in, uh, in Yucatan, whatever they're, they're cooking. Uh, Noma is a very, very interesting restaurant. Out of us, I will let you guys speak for yourself. We, a few years ago, we used to look to Peran Adria for inspiration. And then we, and after that, we used to look like to, uh, to Noma for inspiration because they were do, doing things completely new. I know I used to look at their things like, oh, that's cool. But as I grow up, as I start to understand how the world works, as I um, start to understand how a lot of the work that I need to do for myself, for myself is to decolonize my mind and my teaching and my, the way I approach my work, I start to understand how it, how problematic it is for Noma and his team, Chevron Eric and his team, to come to Mexico, open a pop-up restaurant, 
that I believe is six to eight hundred dollars a night per person per dinner, in which yes, they use the best ingredient and yes, it's a beautiful place and yes, they travel with like sixty cooks, but at the end of the day, if uh, I hope that they're paying the fishermen, the producers, the farmers what the what the produce is worth, but at the end of the day, if the Mayan people who are the original people of that region not afford to attend that restaurant, that's wrong. That's just not okay. There's a, there's an imbalance of power in which uh, people they have, and we're talking about a region in Mexico in which everything has been sold to the uh, to the uh, to the biggest bidder. So now uh, we have we have this restaurant who's you know. I I know that in, that I've been looking at their work and I and I enjoy their uh, their innovations. But at the end of the day, if my brothers and sisters from that region cannot attend any of their dinners because it's six hundred dollars and the living uh, and what you get paid in Mexico right now per day is less than I'm gonna say it's less, less than seven dollars a day. How is that advancing? cultural engagement. It's not. Uh, would you guys say um, Native American food has made its name in in the country today? Or is that what you guys are doing right now? Um, you know, I, I've been traveling. This is Sean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been traveling quite a bit around the U.S. and Canada and even Europe um, over the past couple of years since I started the sous chef. And I, you know, it's amazing how many people have no concept still today when we feel like we've reached so many people. Um, So I think there's still a tremendous amount of work to be done. um, And all of us have our hands extremely full. But, you know, I see it as um, definitely changing and growing and there's more and more people being aware. Um, But we still have a lot of people to reach um, and a lot of people to educate on on our concepts because, you know, people will still get asked the question constantly, like, you know, what's a typical Native American dish? Um, And you just can't answer that because there's so much variation and uh, difference in culture and variety. Uh, I mean, there's still like hundreds of tribes throughout the U.S., hundreds of tribes throughout um, Canada, Mexico, still three out of 10 people still speak indigenous languages. And, you know, there's just so much uh, information to get out there to people of, like how much variety there is in the indigenous food world in just North America alone. Um, but I think it's definitely on its way. And, you know, with our work here, where what we're doing, like we're not stopping. We're just going to keep pushing as far as we can go um, and hopefully, you know, help make a difference and help other people achieve it also. And how do you hope uh, it, it gets to that point or do you even want it? Want to see it at that point where people are driving through town and they're like, "Oh, I don't know, maybe Mexican food, maybe Italian, I don't know, Native Native American food." What do you guys want? I mean, do you want to see it get to that point? And and if so, how? What What's a good way to get to that you know, point? You know, our goal, you know, through the through the nonprofit that we're creating, is to help set up these um, smaller food businesses directly on the tribal areas in their communities and really help them kind of attain, um, you know, their own food sovereignty by giving them tools for community gardens and permaculture and education and just having, you know, the work there. But we want to 
you know, create these really unique um, restaurant concepts um, that will, you know, just be a center point for healthy and traditional food um, for their particular area. And, you know, for us, it's not really about, um, sure, and then people, I mean, I think people will want to come and visit those restaurants and see, you know, the differences in the food and flavor of that area, and they'll have some place for people to go. But, you know, for us, it's really just riding a wrong of um, getting this food back out there and trying to break free from, you know, the reliance uh, on government foods and subsidies because we just, you know, want to bring health back and we want to, you know, secure culture, especially through food for the future generations. Um, and we see food businesses as being a really viable option of, you know, having some place for the communities to be able to gather and do that. And, you know, I think it's going to open up um, people's eyes who aren't from Indigenous heritage, definitely. Um, and they will have those options to go and try it out if it's something that they want, because there is a tremendous amount of curiosity around us um, for people to try and to see and to understand. Um, and I think, you know, the restaurants and these food businesses will help that as long as we keep it on uh, kind of the level of doing it for the communities and um, having this place as more of an educational piece in general. All right. Uh, well, um, Carlos or Erica, you want to wrap up with anything? I think we, we got a lot covered today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll throw, you know, one little piece, and, and this is in, in relation to what Sean is saying, is that I look at, you know, I hear things say, like, with Navajo Nation, and people have asked me, why are we, why are you so poor on Navajo Nation? And I say, well, you know, if you are looking through the colonizer's eyes at a monetary scenario, then poverty is a real thing. If you're looking at food traditions and ceremonies and language and uh, the ability to be self-sufficient, then we're super rich, you know. And uh, in our conversation on Facebook today, you know, that was one of the main things is this capitalist, capitalist, money, 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 everything's business. And, uh, you know, I can look at, you know, at what Sean's doing. Um, you can look at what uh, Nephi Craig is doing with Cafe Gojo, which is along the same lines. You know, it's uh, the training center for the people. It's uh, being able to teach about our ancestral cooking techniques, our ancestral foods, our, our ability to provide for our communities. And so, you know, for myself and with Taste of Native Cuisine, as much as I like doing, you know, plated dinners and as much as I like doing uh, all the things I do, the things that touch me the most are when I get to work with the kids, you know, and when I get to be in the communities and actually make a difference and and not have to worry about you know, coming coming at it from a monetary perspective, right? Like we're we're trying to build off of a a foundation that you know the the colonizer has done everything you know in their power to destroy, and you know we're still here, we're still fighting. Like I said earlier, we we are rewriting our history, so it's about us, it's about our community, and uh, when it all boils down to it. Um, Opening restaurants and and all these things are are well and fine, but if we're not bringing our people with us, then what was the point? All right. Well, thank you guys so much. Uh, we are no longer gentle Indians. <laughs> I, think, I, I think that's what I'm going to call this you. episode: thank no you. longer gentle Indians. <laughs> can I can I just give a shout out? It's important to recognize a uh, a lot of us met because of the leadership of Naka, which is Nephi Craig. 
uh, Claudia, who wasn't able to join us today, and uh, a lot of us, uh, we would never be sitting here if it wasn't for their, uh, their efforts. So it's worth to give a shout out. All right. Well, thank you guys. Have a good night. We'll we'll talk to you guys later. I want to get some of you on a on a future episode. I think. Yeah. Andy. <laughs> Andy, I think that we should make this a uh, round table that we do like four times a year or something. Right. Okay. No longer Literally, gentle Indians we, part two. We don't part have, three. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, this is the, this is what we're talking about. We don't have access to media. We don't. We're joking around, but, you know, no, uh, no longer gentle Indians, but, you know, at the same time, we also have to, like, build our own infrastructure and build our own voices. Right, right. No, obviously, nobody has done it for us, so we just have to do it ourselves. That was Erica Scott Pacheco, social justice fundraiser and campaign strategist from the Lenape tribe. Naftali Duran, Mixteco chef from Oaxaca, Mexico. Sean Sherman, Oglala Lakota chef and founder of the company, The Sioux Chef. And Carlos Baca, chef and forager. He's Tiwa, Dene, and Ute. Thank you for listening to episode 12 of the Toasted Sister podcast. Please share it and spread the word that Toasted Sister is the only podcast around that focuses on native food. You can subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, Podcast Addict, and Stitcher. Music was created for Toasted Sister by C.W. Ione. Check out his awesome blues music on his website, cwayone.com. That's c-w-a-y-o-n.com. That's C.W.A.Y.O.N.com.